can't believe right as we're about to start, I spill my coffee in. The notes for Brian Muir's You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. Okay. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell, and this is uh, not me searching for ideas. This is not autobiographical in any way. Is uh. Where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? You can leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishowradio. This week's winner will get a copy of, we'll get a flash drive loaded with the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century featuring 25 classic This Is Hell interviews from the 2000s. This week on This Is Hell, we'll have the return of journalist Liza Featherstone, who has a couple of new articles out. One in The New Republic. I know, The New Republic. What happened? Moving Beyond Misogyny, Why Do They Hate Us? And the other at Jacobin, titled, When the Ruling Class Feared Communism, As We Commemorate the Many Horrors of the Cold War, Let's Not Forget Some of the Good Things It Brought Us, Above All, A Frightened Ruling Class Scared Into Making Concessions. Liza was on our show most recently back in March of last year when we discussed her book, Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation. Liza is a contributing editor to The Nation, where she also writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Liza is also the editor of a book we featured in a series of interviews back in election year 2016, titled False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. So yes, Donald Trump is all our fault. Following Liza, we'll hear from political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. Wendy is class of 1936, first chair at the University of California, Berkeley where she teaches political theory. Wendy's most recent book prior to In the Ruins of Neoliberalism was 2015's Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. Then we'll actually talk to somebody who met freed former Brazilian Brazilian president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva this week after Lula was let out of prison because Brazil's Supreme Court ruled Lula could no longer be held under a law that requires the convicted face mandatory imprisonment if they lose their very first appeal. The far-right government is now speeding up the process to make the law requiring mandatory sentencing a constitutional amendment. There's also another suspect corruption case against Lula that could land him back in jail. We'll try to figure out not only what is happening with Lula now, but what his future may bring when we have the return of editor and our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program, from the South, and then on tomorrow's show, we'll have another returning guest, journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner, who posted the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting articles Whitewashing Neoliberal Repression in Chile and Ecuador and Media 
Chile's state criminality delegitimize Bolivian democracy. This is Lucas's fifth appearance on This Is Hell, including joining us in studio back in August of 2017. Lucas was on most recently in June when we discussed his article, There's Far More Diversity in Venezuela's Muzzled Media Than in U.S. Corporate Press. Lucas is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com and is based in Venezuela. And we'll have a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. So this week, we begin by rethinking not only misogyny, but also the impact communism had on civil rights in the United States. And our reexamination won't stop there as we will reconsider neoliberalism as possibly a well-intended attempt at democratization of the market that has gone horribly wrong. Next, it's on to a story the news media in the United States refuses to discuss because it might lead them to being critical of U.S. foreign policy, and that would be anything to do with Lula and Brazil. Then a report on the South American countries in the, that the U.S. is currently trying to overthrow, and in some cases succeeding apparently in Chile, Ecuador, and yes, Bolivia. And of course, the moment of truth with Jeff. We warned you, this is hell brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure while I try to catch my breath from running around cleaning up coffee. This week's hangover cure is, despite us telling you last week that the classic brewer's cure was the only cure of the 15 suggested by brewers that we have yet to offer during our signature segment, this week's Hangover Cure is also one listed in the suggestion by Brewer. There's quite a lot going on in this paragraph. In an article we mentioned at VinePair headlined, we asked 15 brewers, what's your go-to hangover remedy? They quote Libby Kreider, co-owner of Second Shift Brewing in St. Louis, Missouri. Kreider says her hangover cure is, pretend like I don't have a hangover until I don't have a hangover anymore. I just ignore it until it goes away. That's that's my healthcare plan. Uh, and we have found yet another cure in the article that we've never offered before during the segment which will be next week's cure. So that makes this week's hangover cure, pretending you don't have a hangover, just uh, simply ignoring it. Yeah, I have no idea why I missed all those other hangover cures that were listed beneath the fold, as it were. I think there were like weird ads at the bottom of the page or something or in the middle of the article or something, and I didn't see. There's a whole bunch of other good cures in that one. Oh, and real quick before I continue. Uh, so Monday, we were supposed to be interviewing the former CIA case officer turned whistleblower, Jeffrey Sterling. He is author of Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. We were all set, ready to do that show. We couldn't get power to my microphone yesterday, so we have rescheduled Jeffrey. He will be on a special airing of This Is Hell next Friday, a week from Friday. So I don't know what that date is. Anyway. The, the 22nd. 22nd. It's not tentative. I think, I think it's going to work. I'm just waiting for the uh, final confirmation on Okay, that. so on November 22nd, you will be able to hear that interview, hopefully with Jeffrey Sterling. So that's that. And I just dropped a book. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I started my opening monologue on June 2nd of last year by saying this. I've got really bad news for you liberals and Democrats listening right now. President Trump will not be impeached, or at least that's my prediction. And that might be good news for you liberal Democrats, as according to every bookie I've ever had, my predictions usually end up not so great. Now, don't get me wrong. I said how I would very much enjoy seeing President Trump being impeached. But I also would have enjoyed seeing President George W. Bush 
being impeached for lying us into a war in Iraq. President Clinton was impeached, but not for what I thought he should have been impeached, and that's the continuous bombing of Iraq, of Iraq without a declaration of war. Uh, President George H.W. Uh, Bush should have also been impeached for lying us into the Gulf War, and he and President Reagan should have both been impeached for Iran-Contra. Nixon was in the process of being impeached when he resigned, but only after finding the most partisan Republican lackey to replace him as president and thus be guaranteed a pardon, Ford did exactly what Nixon wanted. And so, I don't know, man, maybe he could have impeached him for that, too. I mean, I feel he should be impeached for it. President Johnson should also have been impeached for lying us into Vietnam with the Gulf of Tonkin charade. Truman should have been impeached for calling the Korean War a police action, as well as for allowing the Air Force to drop not one but two atomic bombs on civilian populations. So, yeah, it would be great to see Trump impeached, but like Russiagate, it would also be great if instead of endless speculation erasing all of the news out of the news cycle, the news media industry would not forget that there is more happening in the world than only Trump's impeachment. The news media definitely tipped its hand on CNN's media criticism show, Reliable Sources, so expect wall-to-wall impeachment coverage and speculation and reports on nothing else happening in the world for the next... Good Lord, who knows how long. Reliable Sources and its host, Brian Stelter, don't really seem to get the idea of media criticism and that they don't spend as much time criticizing their colleagues in the media as much as having members of the media criticize other members of the media. It's more a meta-media critique program. In discussing the upcoming impeachment inquiry, Stelter described that what we are about to witness, this, these hearings, the inquiry, potential trial is a TV show first. He advised that the inquiry have a huge splash at the beginning to draw viewers in and captivate them with the inquiry, which, more than criticizing the media, actually advocates media's worst practices, turning every news event into an entertainment in an attempt to get ratings. The bad news for Stelter and those who want fireworks at the inquiry when it starts Wednesday tomorrow is that the first two witnesses scheduled to testify do not have first-hand knowledge of the infamous Trump phone call with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. In other words, the exact kind of testimony Fox News can tear apart for their viewers, which seems to be Stelter's and Reliable Source's greatest concern. They both frame all their media critique through the lens of Fox News, which is a real narrow way to view the media and actually promotes the news outlet they detest the most and is CNN's, their boss's, greatest competition. And if that wasn't bad enough, on Thursday of last week, CBS Evening News host, I'm sorry, news anchor, Nora O'Donnell was on discussing the impeachment inquiry with correspondent Paula Reed. Reed reported that the anonymous author of A Warning, which is highly critical of the Trump presidency, would soon identify him or herself. Reed, smiling, then shared a quote from White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham. Yes, there still is a White House Press Secretary. It's just that she doesn't hold press conferences because she saw how that was a disaster for her predecessors. Grisham said of the author of A Warning, It takes conviction and bravery to write a book anonymously, which made both Reed and O'Donnell laugh. First, you know what takes conviction and bravery? 
being a press secretary who actually talks to the press, something Reed nor O'Donnell pointed out. Second, why would anyone in the press corps quote a press secretary on anything if that press secretary isn't doing the job they should be doing for the press? And third, both O'Donnell and Reed seem clueless as to why someone would write a book anonymously. They seem like they have no idea of how power works. If the author had not written the book anonymously, do you think this book would have ever been published? They never consider the power of the president and his supporters, and the kind of intimidation the author is experiencing even anonymously. But when you are a successful CBS News anchor or reporter, you have power. So those who are relatively powerless and have mustered the courage to actually challenge power, something CBS Evening News is unwilling to do, well, you're a joke. What else is happening other than the media getting up in a lather about the ratings potential for an impeachment inquiry that may or may not end up in impeachment. You may have heard former president of Brazil, Lula, was released from jail because the Brazilian Supreme Court ruled that he could no longer be held legally. And no, that did not make CBS or ABC or NBC nightly news programs. Not one reported Lula had been freed, and I'm betting it's the same reason that Brie Busk told us they didn't cover the Chilean protests, because it reveals something really, really, really bad about the U.S. With Lula, you'd have to explain why he was in jail, how he got there, why he was released, and all that points back to the U.S. using what Pope Francis, among others, has condemned as lawfare and the weaponizing of justice to overthrow democratically elected leaders and policies that represent the will of the people. Nothing to see here, and Lula's freedom didn't make the front page of the New York Times, but Evo Morales' resignation in what his government has called another U.S.-backed coup on South America, that did make the front page Monday. And then today, another protest made the Times front page. That would be the protests in Hong Kong, which the Times loves to report because they are in opposition to China and support the U.S. In other words, the New York Times had a massive report on how the largest agricultural producing areas of the country, in other news, uh, have now become food deserts. That's right. Where we grow food, you can't buy food. And that knowledge might make viewers question the wonders of the free market. Only in America, and I guess in France too, as the French are lamenting the end of the local bakery where one could buy fresh baked bread, free of the kind of preservatives and bread here in the States that has been linked to so many digestive ailments. Only in America, and I guess France, will that happen. Only in capitalism would food-producing areas not have stores to buy food, and food that's good for you would no longer be profitable. Now, yesterday was Veterans Day, a day that was originally meant to honor peace, not war, and the news definitely did not allow you to forget that and what were a bunch of prepackaged segments on the men and women and no trans people, no gay people who are or have been in the military service. But one day to honor service members was not enough for football. During this weekend's college and pro football games, they didn't say Veterans Day, but Veterans Week. Each pregame show featured dozens and dozens of military personnel in uniforms surrounding the hosts, using people we send to die in pointless wars as props for who the hell knows what except making the U.S. look like freaking Sparta. You want to honor the veterans and better understand the, their plight post-war? Watch the Sebastian Junger 
the documentary, Going to War, which PBS was showing fairly regularly up until Veterans Week. In it, you will hear and see veterans reenacting the murders they have committed for those supporting wars, and it's not pretty. They don't want you to thank them for their service because it reminds them that their service is serving up dead people for no apparent good reason. In stupid news, what the hell is up with billionaire-turned-Democratic presidential nomination candidate Tom Steyer? I'm really concerned about his decision-making ability. This guy's, he's got over a billion dollars, and judging by the TV ads, instead of opting for implants to replace whatever teeth he's missing, I'm telling you, the guy is wearing dentures. You can hear them click when he reads his script about who knows what. I couldn't stop focusing on the fact that someone with all that money didn't get implants and opted for dentures. Look, I'm not going to shame anybody for having bad teeth. That's an incredibly classist thing to do. And being poor, I have horrible teeth. If I had the money, there is no question I'd get implants. In fact, it's the only thing stopping me from getting implants. And I'm seriously considering going into more debt to get implants. But a billionaire choosing dentures over implants... I've got serious issues with that kind of thinking. Okay, getting back to the impeachment inquiry for a moment. I am on the email list of Trump advisor Roger Stone, who is currently on trial for allegedly knowingly lying to Congress about his interactions with WikiLeaks to protect the president. I don't know why I'm on Roger Stone's email list. I just am. In his most recent email, Stone has this to offer. I cannot begin to tell you how difficult and exhausting this ordeal has been for me. The pressure and stress is nearly unbearable. And still, I will not stop fighting. And I stand 100% with President Donald Trump. The impact on my family is even worse. My wife, Nadia, has injured her knee, a torn meniscus, which is misspelled. And she may need knee replacement surgery. Stone states, I am embarrassed to say I do not have the money to pay for the urgent medical attention she needs. I have an idea, Roger. Support a president who wants universal health care so you don't have such financial difficulties. He then goes on to say, I'm not asking for a handout because Mrs. Stone and I have pledged to do our best to contribute whatever our family support fund raises to a worthy charity when I'm acquitted and we get back on our feet. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what will happen with that money and we'll definitely not be seeing you back in court for reneging on that promise. Now, we should here on This Is Hell do nothing but impeachment speculation. We should follow Trump's demands of the Ukraine government and keep repeating three words, investigations, Biden, Clinton, and we should add impeachment, Trump, and lying. That would really get us the ratings that we should be pursuing if we are to have success in the media. But that's our problem. Our problem is this is not the media, thank God. This is hell. And this week, we're rethinking misogyny and the effect communism had on civil rights in the United States. After that, we'll learn how neoliberalism monetized our morals and moralized our money. Then we'll find out what's happening in Brazil now that Lula has been freed. And we'll complete this week's show with a report on the South American countries whose elections the U.S. is now trying to overturn by backing coup d'etats. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. And I want to thank Jonah Tomko-Smith for coming over here yesterday and trying to get to us on air or streaming live yesterday when we were unable to get power to our microphone. And I want to thank our uh, engineer. 
Theron Humiston, who came over here last night after work and put everything back together. Without Theron, this studio would not be happening right now. He uh, designed the patch bay that goes between the producer's booth and the interview booth, and he's been doing all of the wiring, uh, using all the equipment that we've had donated by listeners that we've been able to purchase due to the support of our listeners. If it wasn't for Theron, none of this would be happening, so I really want to thank Theron for all of his support. And don't forget, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support, and you can get what we are giving away as a gift or as the prize for the Question from Hell winner this week, and that is the flash drive loaded with the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, featuring 25 classic This Is Hell interviews that we have done since the year 2000. You can find that as well as the trucker cap, uh, coffee mug, t-shirt, tote bag. You can find all that stuff at our new store at thisishell.com when you click on support. So you can go there and check that out. Uh, Earlier, by the way, our hangover cure was pretending you don't have a hangover, simply ignoring it, which I find very difficult. Hey, Alex, can you change those lights behind you? Turn them down a little bit because they're right right in my eyes and seeing as how I have solar sensitivity, (laughs) that's really bad for me. Uh, I just don't believe this, uh, pretending you don't have a hangover. That's pretending you don't have a hangover. How the hell do you pretend not to have a hangover. I have absolutely no clue how that happens. Uh, By the way, I'm really looking forward to the interview that we're going to be doing with Jeffrey Sterling a week from Friday. His story of why he ended up in prison, why he was the person who was blamed for the leak that led to James Risen's book is absolutely fascinating. The weird thing about it, and I know that our listeners are going to have some sort of issue with this, I just know it. The weird thing about it is that, you know... Here's a guy who, you know, he just will not believe that America is the racist country that he sees, that he sees happening right now. And it's very weird when you have somebody on the air who is a very, uh, next Friday, uh, November 22nd, when we talk to Jeffrey Sterling, who is incredibly patriotic and still was screwed over by the CIA, was screwed, screwed over by the government, still holding on to that hope that America can, can be what he believes it can be. It's, it's, you got to tune in a week from Friday. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. How does viewing misogyny as both pervasive and seemingly impossible to overcome affect the way we understand feminism? Why were civil rights progressing far more during the Cold War than they are now? Here to answer those questions, actually... Far better questions than those, I promise. Returning to This Is Hell, journalist Liza Featherstone is author of the New Republic article, Moving Beyond Misogyny, Why Do They Hate Us? Welcome back to This Is Hell, Liza. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. A couple things I got to Well, first of all, Liza also recently wrote the story that we'll be discussing when the ruling class feared communism for Jacobin. So the New Republic, what the hell happened to the New Republic that they're allowing people like you to write for them? What's going on? Oh I, oh, I know. And, you know, um, they've been they've been doing this for a while. Um, not just me, but um, but all kinds of leftists have been writing for the New Republic um, for um, um, about a, about a year. Um, they um, they um, they got kind of left curious at the end of their last last um, editorship. And then um, since then, um, my um a uh, longtime editor, Chris Lehman, who I've written for at a lot of different publications, who's a um, um, a 
a real um, a real intellectual and um, a real lefty as well um, is um, has been uh, running the place and you know bringing in uh, um, all all kinds of leftists um, you know not on, not only myself but um, Adolf Reed and um, my husband Doug Henwood um, and um, 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 you know, just all kinds of um, really um, interesting, interesting left folks. It is not Marty Peretz's New Republic anymore. Very clearly, um, it's. I mean, it's in a way it's going back to its roots. Um, it was a pretty, um, it, it was a pretty left magazine in the '60s and '70s, um, and um, and has had all um, all kinds of. Um, traditions, um, traditions of dissent. Um, you know, it just had a, it had a long uh, neoliberal run um, in in the in the in the um, Peretz days, and and then it became just sort of a boring uh, policy wonk. Um, I mean, obviously, we think policy is very important, but you know what I mean. I mean, it became. Um, it became very DC centric um, for a while, um, um, which was a bit boring. Um, but even before the the Chris Lehman and the recent turn, um, they were getting curious with writers like Elizabeth Brunig, um, people like that. Yeah, and our li- our listeners might know Chris. He's been, uh, from being on our show, but also from all of his writing at, at, for years and years at the Baffler. So uh, it's in really, the Baffler, yeah, yeah, it was, it's, yeah. It's really great to see that he's uh, working. <laughs> just it's just so great to see the New Republic changing. My God, that thing was so horrible for so long. So you, you start your article by writing before the smoke had cleared after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Americans were already asking why do they hate us. Some people speculated guilty, guiltily from the left about how we might have prompted the hatred with our imperialism. Many more speculated indignantly, buoyed by belligerent patriotism. Uh, The question didn't get us anywhere. In fact, it cemented our national paranoia and sense of victimhood, always a reactionary consciousness. Are those on the left then who believe the U.S. might have prompted the hatred of 9-11 with its imperialism then promoting a reactionary con- consciousness does belief in u.s imperialism lead to a kind of paranoia and victim? no okay no 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 i mean I, I i certainly think that we provoke all kinds of problems with our imperialism um but um but i i, I just think the why do we hate us is generally the the wrong question and um and and it leads um, quickly um, down this sort of self-pitying and reactionary path. Um, I think people on the left who um, who who asked that question at that time um, were well-intentioned, um, but um, but I, I don't I don't think. Um, um, but I, I just think it's 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 very rarely a productive level um, line of inquiry. You mentioned an author and book we featured on our show, Kate Mann, and her uh, book, uh, Down Girl. You explain how Kate identifies pervasive hatred of women as a central problem facing society. Mann's book ends with Hillary Clinton's defeat and Donald Trump's victory in the 2016 presidential election. Events Mann insists were also fueled by hatred of women. This view has suffused the liberal feminist mainstream. When Me Too fervor began a year later, Rebecca Solnit, another past guest on our show, voiced 
voiced assumptions common to her milieu of Harvey Weinstein, uh, Roy Moore, Bill O'Reilly, even mass killers, she wrote, they are the norms, not the aberrations. This is society still permeated and shaped and limited by misogyny and uh, among other afflictions. Jill Filipovich, who uh, has blamed misogyny not only for Trump's presidency, but also for for phenomena as disparate as anti-abortion politics and the far left's preference for Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren. You had no doubt some men do hate women, yet it's odd to read the 2016 election as a victory for misogyny. What's wrong with viewing Trump's presidency as a victory for misogyny? What kind of thinking does that lead to? Yeah, well, there's there's two problems. Um, um, one one empirical and one um, and, and one um, philosophical. And um, the, the 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 empirical part that I have I have trouble with is, um, I mean, Hillary Clinton, and you know, I've been on your show before to talk about all the reasons I hate Hillary Clinton, none of which are misogynist, I hope. Um, and uh, um, but um, but Hillary Clinton, putting all that aside, um, won the popular vote um, by. Um, um, two or three million. Um, I think actually it was well more than two, two million, closer to three million um, people, um, and um, and that's um, that that's that's really a lot. It's actually an unusual margin, um, and um, and she. Um, so it, it's hard to um, if we're to quantify, um, you know how. You know how the if we're to quantify if we're to use the election as a measure of the feelings of the people the attitudes of the people, um, you, you can't look at those findings and see um, everybody hates Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. You know, what what you see is millions of people um, wanted Hillary Clinton to be president more than they wanted um, Donald Trump. Um, so. I mean, like if anything, the results reflect a hatred of Donald Trump. Um, but we have instead what we have um, is um, an electoral college, which is a, 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 a you know a relic of slave owners put in place to um, um, to um, keep um, to um, you know to to keep um, you know. Um, you know, white male property owners um, and hegemony over um, over everybody else, um, and now preserve some white supremacy by giving small states with hardly anyone in them um, more power than everybody else. I mean, that's the that's what elected Donald Trump um, as a um, as as a mechanism. It's it's not that I'm saying that misogyny doesn't exist or that some people might. Um, have been too misogynist. I'm sure some people were too misogynist to vote for Hillary Clinton, but you can't see that in the numbers. Um, and an election is fundamentally about numbers. So that's the that's that's the problem I have with it as an empirical argument. Um, what I have the 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 problem I have um, with it as a as, as a philosophical um, argument, of course, is well, where would you go from there? Like even if you thought that was the problem, um, where does that leave us? Um, Kate Mann's um, um, Kate, Kate, Kate Mann's very um, thorough and um, um, and um, passionately argued book um, 
you know, t- towards the end of it, she says, um, I give up. I don't know what the solution is. Um, and, um, and she is the most, um, you know, she is the most serious intellectual um, of all the um, um, of, of all the feminists who are publicly fixating on this misogyny problem. And if she doesn't know what to do about it, um, it just doesn't see it. It doesn't really seem like um, a political philosophy that offers much of a, a way forward. Is do you think that's the intent of liberal feminists who blame misogyny for the reason Trump is president? Do you think their intent is to distract us from the bigger structural problems of the electoral college and how, as you point out, it embraces white supremacy and white privilege? Um, so I always have some trouble with um, with these kinds of questions because, um, of course, in some cases, um, you know, throughout history. Um, people have literally been paid by the CIA to come up with stupid ideas like this. I'm not sure that this is the case, right? I, I'm not. I'm not arguing that um, that that they're um, that 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 they're um, you know sort of like cold-bloodedly intending to come up with an idea that um, that doesn't. Um, lead to any kind of structural challenges or structural change. Um, however, um, I think that the ideas, I, I think subconsciously, the ideas work well and play well um, with people um, who don't actually want um, very much to change, with people who are, um, you know, pretty comfortable in their um, in their professional positions and in their, um, perhaps in their class positions, um, who, um, you know, who would rather that politics were just, um, you know, a series of things to be outraged and righteous about, you know, because, um, you know, that's, that there, there is quite a lot of, um, um, there is quite a lot of careerist energy in that area. And all this outrage, I can see how it would be very attractive. It's very out, it's very attractive to be outraged, but then that outrage doesn't really seem to get you anywhere. What explains to you the inability or unwillingness for liberals, for Democrats, to sustainably be attacking the Electoral College in order to eliminate it? Why isn't it part of the Democratic Party's platform? They've been screwed over on this thing twice in the last few elections. So you'd figure they'd be all about, we got to get rid of the Electoral College. What explains to you why they have not done anything about challenging the Electoral College? You know, um, it is really an interesting thing to me, and it's it's similar to, um, um, it's, I mean, it, it's similar to the question that I always wonder, why don't they, why don't the Democrats um, make voter suppression a major priority? They keep, um, they keep being screwed over by that as well, right? That, um, that, you know, black people who would like to vote for Democrats um, get, um, you know, get 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 their votes suppressed um, through through um, th- through through racist um, bullying um, in many places. Um, I and and it never seems to emerge as a major priority for the Democratic Party. Um, and the Electoral College is really similar, like a clear a clear structural issue that is unjust and also keeps hurting the Democrats, um, you know, uh, so, um, and, and yet they don't fix it. And I, I, I mean, I, I have to assume, um, in part that, um, that it has to do with, the um, um, the, the Democrats, um, complicity in um, it, complicity in white supremacy and com- uh, complicity um, with the ruling class like that 
their um, their corporate paymasters just don't want to rock the boat too much, um, and um, and 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 I think it's a, in, it's it's indicative of how um, you know sometimes um, sometimes this kind of um, rhetoric of outrage. Um, you know, around things like misogyny, um, you know, or, um, you know, um, can ring sort of hollow because, you know, when we're, um, like when we're actually um, given, when the Democratic Party is actually um, given a chance to um, really address, um, you know, um, racism or, uh, you know, structural racism or structural sexism, uh, it, it, it very often punts um, on on this issue. So there's some there there's um I, I think I think in many ways um, you know things like misogyny um, tend to just just become um, kind of a, a renewable resource of um, of, of outrage um, to you know to continue. Um, to um, get the you know the liberal base riled up and um, and also it it kind of keeps the whole internet going you know all that outrage <laughs> you know, so there's a certain um, you know I think like a lot of um, you know it, it influencers and the whole like attention economy of the media kind of benefits from that as well um, so there's a you write that uh, nonetheless, today's liberal feminists remain passionately invested in the ideas uh, idea of misogyny's pervasiveness, a conviction that often leads them to fixate with spe- special laser force on progressive men. Thanks a lot. So why target progressive <laughs> men? Are liberal feminists simply trying to be fair and balanced? <laughs> I don't Why are they trying to... Why attack? So, <laughs> I think there's two things going on there. Um, I think one is... Um, um, one is there's a real lack of um, there's a there's a there's a real lack of of thinking strategically about what sort of politics we might advance that would actually help women make progress um, and um, and and you know who um, who might be helpful in that struggle and who we should throw under the bus and who we should not um, and and there's and and, and there there's sort of um, a, um, you know, so 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 some of it is, um, I mean, some of it is a, a kind of um, a purism that, uh, you know, if if you were to just focus on Roy Moore, it wouldn't really show um, how completely committed we are to fighting misogyny. Like, if you're really committed, you should be going after um, all the, you know, bad guys in your own rank. Um, so some of it is just is so, so, so some of it is that I mean that that there's sort of a um, um, a, a righteousness sort of a putting righteousness over um, you know cold political strategy, um, which is you know sort of how you end up you know with a you know if 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 Roy Moore is bad then you know Al Franken must go you know I mean you know and um, so. Um, so it's almost as if men who claim to be allies to women set themselves up for special vulnerability. <laughs> um, but um, but then in um, I I, th- I think there's something else going on there, which um, which so which is that um, 
liberal institutions and liberal constituencies will respond to the outrage. So, I mean, you know, if you know, if you um, if you if you target a democratic politician or someone in an arts organization, you know, or you know, or you know, prominent prominent musician, prominent artist, um, you know, people people like that, people in Hollywood, um, those institutions are going to respond to um, accusations um, of um, of misconduct against women um, because those are liberal institutions with liberal constituencies. So it's almost like a, a, a just a sort of a low-hanging fruit strategy, I think, you know, that you're, you're going to go after, um, you're, you're going to go after um, these men because, um, you know, people, um, people, it, it really will affect them. People really will um, turn against them. Whereas, you know, in most cases, if you were to go after um, all these horrible misogynist Republicans, it's not like people who vote for them would really care. Um, so I think that's part of it. But I also think there is a, um, there's a further thing, which is that um, the, um, the obsession with misogyny, because it is so politically vacuous, can also um, easily be um, be be weaponized in a reactionary way, um, as in sort of the fixation with um, with, with Bernie Sanders voters being like um, being being specially misogynist or more than other internet users, which um, is a constant accusation that will never go away. Um, that I think is absurd. Do, do liberal feminists who believe that misogyny is pervasive, do they need a more nuanced understanding of society's feelings toward women? Is sexism, in your opinion, more accurate than misogyny? Is it more a prejudice stereotype or discrimination against women rather than hatred toward women? I think that, yeah, I do think, I think that hatred is is really um, too... Um, simple. Um, I mean, I, I think um, I, I I don't think that um, I, I I don't think that um, I don't think that the problems that women face in our society can mostly um, be reduced to misogyny. Um, I don't think that's why. I don't think it's the main reason that Donald Trump won the election. Um, I think it's. Um, I don't think it's the reason that. Um, um, I don't think it's the reason that we've been experiencing an, a crackdown on abortion rights all of these years. I think that that's, um, I think that's also very simplistic. Um, I think, um, I think that all of these, um, all of these kinds of things can, um, um, are, um, um, more, um, more about patriarchy. They're more about the low status of women and the lo- the lack of political power that women have, um, the, um, and the, like the, um, the, um, you know, the, the economic disadvantages that women face. I mean, and, um, you know, and the, um, the lack of, um, you know, the, the, the exploitation of women's labor, um, reproductive labor and, um, you know, pro- like workplace labor. I mean, like the, these are, um, you know, these are very often questions of exploitation. I mean, sure, there are some jerks who hate women, um, but there, uh, but but this is, um, you know, when when we look at um, 
the problems that most women face of um, low wages, discrimination on the job, um, um, lack of access to abortion, lack of access to health care in general uh, for themselves and their dependents, um, the I mean, like poverty of single parent households, like all of these things. Um, it's not like these aren't really um, these things aren't really happening because too many men hate women, um, and um, and I mean these are these things are really. Um, happening because um, because women um, are um, are women are disadvantaged. Women um, don't have as much political and economic power um, as men. You write where contemporary feminists are almost morbidly obsessed with men and their foibles. The second wave of feminism was compelled by women and their potential. This made me think of the opposite. It made me think of misandry. It made me think of hate for men. Is is does misandry have any impact on feminism? Um. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think in some ways the obsession with misogyny um, is a a projection. <laughs> I mean that um, that the obsession with misogyny is, is in itself a form of misandry. That um, that that there's that there's such a um, um, that, that there's such a fixation um, on um, on men and their flaws, um, and, um, and 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 I, I do think at the expense of of women and their potential, um, I I think that it's it's a very um, it's 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 in in many ways it feels like a a very narrowly heterosexual frame. It's like what well, why think so much about these people? You know, they're like it, like. It, Oh, we just lost her. All right, please uh, reconnect yeah, with right uh, Liza, and we'll get her back on. We are speaking with Liza Featherstone. She has been on our show, I think, I don't know, a dozen times maybe. Journalist Liza Featherstone. She's author of the New Republic article, Moving Beyond Misogyny, Why Do They Hate Us? Liza also recently wrote the story we'll be talking about in a little bit with her, When the Ruling Class Feared Communism, that was at Jacobin. Liza was on our show most recently back in March of last year when we discussed her book, Divining Desire Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation, which is just a fascinating book, and you should read it. Liza is a contributing editor to The Nation, where she also writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. You can follow her on Twitter at Feathers. that's with a Z, Feathers with a Z. You write that uh, feminist intellectuals of the 1970s ardently believed that after the feminist revolution, everyone would have better sex. Shulamith <laughs> Firestone, author of the 1970 classic the dialectic of sex agreed with Freud on at least one thing, the centrality of sexuality to our society's problems, but where Freud saw no solution to human unhappiness in this arena, Firestone envisioned the end of patriarchy. Is patriarchy a better way of understanding feminism than misogyny? And again, if so, why? Um, it definitely is, because because patriarchy is um, patriarchy is the um, the political dominance of um, of men over women, um, or the, and the dominance of men over women in um, in in every area in you know um, sexual, domestic, economic, um, and um, and and misogyny is um, 
um, and misogyny as um, as a fixation on um, on on hatred is a narrow frame. Now, um, now in in um, in Kate Mann's argument, she sees misogyny as a um, um, as the um, the enforcement mechanism for patriarchy that women are hated when they um, when they step out um, of the of the of patriarchal expectations like you know they're um, they're like they're too ambitious or you know, um, you know or they're um, or they're sluts or you know that kind of thing um, so you know that's a little bit more of a helpful um, under at least it sort of places at least she sort of places misogyny in relation to patriarchy in a way um, that many um, misogyny obsessed <laughs> feminists do not. Um, but still, like, um, why, um, why, why foreground it so much at all? I mean, that's because it, 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 it when, when um, our, um, our real concern, um, our real concern, um, I think, um, should be patriarchy because actually we know from um, from centuries of of history, that when we um, when we struggle politically um, against patriarchy, we make progress. And, you know, and um, but how would you struggle against misogyny? It doesn't even make any sense. Right. You know, I mean, it's like a. <laughs> I don't know how you'd go about actually attacking misogyny, and, and you write yeah. you write in consciousness. And, and I mean, it's it's no wonder that you know Kate Mann admits that there's no solution. How would there be a solution? It... Right, exactly, and and you would, and it's kind of the same way when you think about racism. You can't really end racism, but the structural uh, institutions that support racism, you could certainly challenge those. You write in consciousness-raising sessions, feminists in the second wave question the male supremacy influencing how most humans copulated. How does patriarchy <laughs> affect the way we have sex? Yeah, well, um, they, 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 they talked about that a lot. Um, and they, um, they talked about the way that, um, you know, most, most people, most heterosexuals, um, had, um, would, um, would, would have sex in ways that maximized, um, the man's pleasure rather than the woman's, um, and really, um, and that really, um, ignored, um, what, um, um, what would feel good to women and, the, you know, and they, they really saw, um, female pleasure as a central political issue. I mean, they, um, they even like, yeah, have been discussed in, con- in consciousness raising sessions, like, how do you find the clitoris? Like, where even is it? You know, I mean, and, you know, this was, these were sort of central, central questions for the second wave. And, um, and the, um, and, and the and and again, I mean, they um, you know they they looked at a world that had been um, organized um, for um, men and um, and 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 saw that um, women could be so much more that women could experience so much more um, and um, and like women could have so much more power um, and. Um, um, and with um without um patriarchy but they also saw that well women would really um have a lot more fun without patriarchy <laughs> we would have better sex and you know we would um, we would have a um we would have more interesting relationships um including with men you know and um and uh, and they were very um they they were very um utopian and very um imaginative about that that um 
um, Simone de Beauvoir um, thought um, thought we would um, that men and women would um, would have so much better relationships that the couple would um, would really um, you know just the, the the regular conventional heterosexual couple would be um, would be so much better um, after um, after the patriarchy and Shulamith Firestone thought eh, you know, maybe the couple would be obsolete. Maybe there would be no need for the couple with um, after, after patriarchy. Maybe everybody would just have sex with whoever they pleased. Maybe sex would just be part of every relationship, every human relationship. So they really were, um, they, they, they thought in very imaginative ways and um, um, a, a, like about, um, about sex and sexuality. They did not um, see sex as um, simply a series of, um, mainly a series of atrocities by men perpetrated against women, which I fear um, is um, is is really um, where we're at with the um, with with misogyny as a central frame of mainstream feminism right now. Liza, I uh, want to make sure that we touch on your article about communism as well. But first, we've been discussing with Liza Featherstone her article that is at the New Republic that is a must read. Moving beyond misogyny, why do they hate us? I've got like 40 more questions for her, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. And I want to touch on the uh, article that you had at Jacobin when the ruling class feared communism. In your Jacobin article, you write, there are plenty of irrational reasons to be nostalgic for the middle of the 20th century. Who does doesn't love the furniture, the hairdos, the cars with vulva-shaped grills. I love the Edsel. But there are plenty of practical reasons, too. It was a time of significant social change, thanks in part to the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. Why did the Cold War cause social change, cause a real civil rights movement here in the United States? Yeah, well, I think um, I mean obviously it was it was a dynamic, and it wasn't um, it, it it wasn't um, just the Cold War that caused these things, but the Cold War really um, created a context um, in which um, in which the ruling class was um, was pressured um, to accommodate um, many of the demands that social movements were making. Um, the 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 Cold War. Um, was um, in part um, a contest between two superpowers um, about who, which one, the United States or the Soviet Union, was going to deliver um, more freedom, more happiness, um, a better life to its citizens. Um, and, um, and this, in this contest, um, um, you know the, the 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 citizens of both countries got a lot out of it, um, and um, and you know the um, the civil rights movement is one example that um, the the situation um, of African Americans in the United States was um, was a, a constant source um, of embarrassment to the U.S. in the Cold War. It was um, um, it was a source of um, Communist propaganda. Look how racist, um, you know, like people are in the United States. Look how badly they treat um, this important segment of their population. Um, and um, and civil rights activists were able to use that. Like, look, you know, look, we're supposed to be this, uh, you know, the land of the free. We're supposed to be, um, you know, we're supposed to be delivering the um, the best um, that the world um, has to offer. And 
um, and we're not doing it. And the the Truman administration actually realized that and wrote in an amicus brief to, um, in Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark school desegregation suit. This the Truman administration um, wrote um, that. Um, that the Supreme Court um, should rule in favor of school desegregation because um, it would help um, our foreign policy objectives. It would help make the case that the um, that the U.S. was um, a, a great country where people were free, as opposed to um, quite the contrary, a, um, a racist. Uh, well, this is hell, <laughs> a racist hell. <laughs> to um, come back to the title of your show, um, so um, that so, so that was tremendously important, and um, and it was um, it was important. Similar, it was similarly it was important in making feminist progress. One last question for you, Liza, and as always, our final question for every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with journalist Liza Featherstone, author of the New Republic article, Moving Beyond Misogyny, and the Jacobin article, When the Ruling Class Feared Communism. You can follow Liza on Twitter at L Feathers. that's with a Z, L Feathers. One last question for you, the question from hell for you is, you write, women in Western countries did not get the vote until after the 1917 Russian Revolution, which gave men and women equal political rights. So, is the right, are conservatives correct, that gender equality, it's all a commie plot? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> gender <laughs> equality is totally a communist plot. All right, then. Now that we've <laughs> outed you. Thank for your question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for your answer. I appreciate it. All right, Liza, it's always great to talk to you. I love your laugh. Say hello to Doug for me. Truly appreciate you being on the show again. Thanks so much, Chuck. It was a delight. All right, take care. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. Alex, again, what is this week's question from Hell? This week's question from hell is, uh, where are you putting all your drugs? Where, where are, are you, you putting, where are you hiding, I suppose? Where are you hiding yeah. all your drugs? Do you have any responses yet? Yeah, you want me to get to them? Uh, let's, let's read them so we don't put Wendy Brown on hold and then have to read all these drug questions. Yeah, it's yeah, let's do these deep, now. Deep source of shame for me. Yeah, uh, where are you hiding all your drugs? You know, I have a drawer at my house that the idiot who re-renovated our kitchen, you can't get your hand into that drawer. And there's a drawer there. You just can't get your hand into it because it's underneath a shelf. It's the stupidest thing in the it world. It sounds like a good and a bad place Every to put Every person I show that drawer to, they say, is that where you hide your drugs? And I'm like, no, I want to get to my drugs. I don't want to not be able to get to my drugs. All right, so where are you hiding Where are you hiding all your drugs? Garrett says, in Chuck's studio. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one hiding them there. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, Nick A I. says, in a hideaway. <laughs> Eric T says, in my bloodstream, at least until I overdose. <laughs> Eric T, bloodstream. Where are you hiding all your drugs? Fabio L says, in refurbished prescription drug containers. <laughs> uh, Zachary W says, in the safe deposit boxes of my enemies. Sebastian M says, min my mouth. <laughs> Greg G says, Mel, the cat, hides them for from me. Have you seen them? Uh, maybe check the litter box <laughs> where Mel hangs out now in a disturbing... I don't know what's going on with that either. Uh, Warren L. says, could you please speak into this potted plant? <laughs> and finally, Nathan T. says, I can't remember. Just maybe the greatest answer of them all. <laughs> Who's that, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, we know I Nathan. can't remember, yes. Yeah, he told us that he saw um, 
or he told me he might have seen Asian carp jumping around in Bubbly Creek, and uh, I know people are very interested in talking to him because if they made it that far up the river, uh, the water system, then that means they're about to get into Lake Michigan, which is real bad. Uh, that again makes this week's question from Hal: Where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? Leave your response at Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. Our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. This week's winner gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, a flash drive loaded with 25 classic This Is Hell interviews since 2000. Under neoliberalism, morals are marketized and markets are moralized, which threatens democracy and enshrines inequality and hierarchies of power that dominate society. In a few minutes, we'll learn everything you wanted to know about neoliberalism and some of it that will surprise you when we speak with political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Policies in the West. It's time for... Nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. November in, on November thirteenth, one thousand and two, in rotten history. That's one thousand and seventeen years ago. This Wednesday, tomorrow, in an area of southern England that for decades had suffered attacks by Danish. Vikings, who had already conquered areas to the north, King Athelred II of Wessex, also known as Athelred the Unready, and as this is rotten history, I'm guessing that does not bode well for Athelred. Athelred the Unready received reports that the Danes were planning to drive south, knock him off his throne, and take over his realm. Athelred responded by ordering a preemptive counterattack, and a battle took place near the town of Oxford on the 13th day of November, which is St. Bryce's Day. So I looked up St. Bryce to see what, what he was a saint of, but I, could, I couldn't find anything. All I could find was something called the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, which I'm betting this is related to. Though the total number of deaths is unknown, the ancient chronicles record that among the dead was Gunhilda, sister of the Danish king Swain I, also known as Swain Forkbeard. This triggered a massive Viking response that would eventually lead to Ethelred's downfall and the ascent of the Danish king Canute, known in apocryphal legend today for his command to still the waves at the seashore, which I think is the opposite of being unready. More recently, in 2008, archaeologists digging on the grounds of St. John's College at the University of Oxford uncovered a mass grave containing dozens of skeletons, which scientific analysis determined to likely be those of Danish warriors killed in the so-called St. Bryce's Massacre. So, Wednesday, November 13th, when you are enjoying your St. Bryce's Feast Day, take a moment to remember that an unready British king massacred a whole bunch of Danes, leading to the rise of Canute. Or just skip the whole thing, because honestly, I have no idea why St. Bryce is a saint. On In Rotten History, on November 13th, 1922, 97 years ago again, tomorrow, Wednesday, amid growing discontent over economic deterioration caused by collapsing export prices, the public utility and public transit workers in Guayaquil, Ecuador, went on strike demanding an eight-hour workday, overtime pay, safer working conditions, and government measures to secure the value of Ecuadorian currency against the U.S. dollar. You know, 
what workers always ask for, the things necessary to have a freaking life. The work stoppage rapidly grew into a general strike that paralyzed the city and the government of President Jose Luis Tamayo sent in military personnel to help police keep order because the only way to stop people from getting what they desperately need is brute force. But on November 15th, two days later, when some 20,000 people, workers and their families, assembled for a rally in the city center, soldiers and police opened fire on the crowd in what multiple witnesses would later testify was an unprovoked attack. Brute force works every time. While some demonstrators were shot to death, others were bayoneted. The massacre brought the strike to an end, and most of the workers' demands were actually eventually met. But estimates of the number of dead ranged from 300 to 1,000. Worker demands were finally met, and I'm starting to think the Chicago Teachers Union probably did a good thing by ending their strike. That's Rotten History, and this is hell coming up now that we've rethought misogyny and communism. We'll re-examine our understanding of neoliberalism. Then a live report from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who met with freed President Lula this week. And tomorrow, we're talking about the uprisings in Ecuador, Chile, and Bolivia. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, I'm a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Traditional morality has been weaponized and valorization of markets has replaced what was democratic governance. With freedom and morality now confined to the rights parameters, neoliberalism has become a Frankenstein that even its originators may not have foreseen. Here to help us better understand neoliberalism, and I'm so glad to have on our show political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti democratic politics in the West. Welcome to our show, Wendy. I really appreciate you being on with us. It's a pleasure to be here. This is your, your book is outstanding. I've been reading your work for a very long time and enjoying it quite a lot. You have a quote from Middlemarch right at the beginning of your book by George Eliot, where Eliot writes, the tyrannical spirit wanting to play bishop and banker everywhere. Is neoliberalism tyranny? Is it cruel and oppressive control applied arbitrarily and unreasonably, or is it more than that? It's interesting. Um, it's I don't actually think it's tyranny, but I do think there's a tyrannical spirit in it, and I think the difference matters. Uh, for some years now, I've been arguing that neoliberalism needs to be understood not just as a set of economic policies, not just as a particular way of deregulating markets or letting loose uh, free enterprise, getting rid of regressive, uh, sorry, progressive taxes, um, stripping out the welfare state, all those things are true, but it also needs to un be understood as a form of reason, a form of reason that governs us, even when there's no tyrant holding over our heads a particular set of threats or even a particular set of uh, instruments. And it's that form of reason that I'm trying to get at in the last couple of books I've written, and especially in this one where I'm really trying to explain something about neoliberalism's contribution to the surge of anti-democratic politics, explicitly anti-democratic politics that we've been facing for the last half decade. What do you say to those who reject the very idea of neoliberalism, seeing it as a, a term that distracts from a larger critique of capitalism, seeing the whole term as completely unnecessary? The reason it's necessary, in my view, is that it gets at a particular iteration of capitalism. It's not that I want to say 
it's very, very different from talking about capitalism in a kind of general neo-Marxist frame. But I want to be able us to be able to understand that it does more than simply empower capital and depower labor. Neoliberalism is a specific way of understanding states, societies, subjects, citizens, and above all, it takes an explicitly uh, anti-democratic project to get what it wants for economies and for the sphere of morality. So that's, I think, what we're going to talk about today. Um, is is what that hard anti-democratic thrust is at the heart of neoliberalism that's different from what we usually mean by capitalism, which is uh, different people mean different things by it. But let's say if we take a rough left account of capitalism, we say, well, it's a form of private property ownership and retention in which capital has all the power and labor is exploited. Neoliberalism's a lot more than that. You write that centrists, mainstream neoliberals, liberals, and leftists are reeling, outrage, moralizing satire and vain hopes that internal factions or scandals on the right will yield self-destruction are far more prevalent than serious strategies for challenging these forces with compelling alternatives. We even have trouble with the naming. Is this authoritarianism, fascism, populism, illiberal democracy, undemocratic liberalism, right-wing plutocracy, or something else? What explains that reaction by the left, if you will, to the rise of the right? Why, why is the rise of the right seen as almost an anomaly, a movement that will inevitably fall and fail? What does that tell you about uh, the way that liberals react to neoliberalism? Well, I think two things. Uh, one is that I think for the most part, um, leftists who reject things like the idea of neoliberal reason and just say, look, we're dealing with capitalism. They're still holding out for an understanding of true consciousness to surface from what they understand to be the false consciousness of those who have gone for a Bolsonaro or a Trump or Brexit or other things. They still imagine there is a true set of interests of the working class. They still imagine there's a working class. And they still imagine that this bundle of lies and mystifications that opportunistic plutocrats have um, managed to capture the, the working class with will be exploded by, by the truth, by, by what's really real. And um, I think that, that the other thing that, that many imagine is that um, we're still in the kind of progressive narrative. We're still progressing, even if we had a little hiccup over the past 10 years, toward a world that is more enlightened, more free, more egalitarian, um, and and more fair and more just, and that it's just a matter of getting back on that train. And um, I reject both of those principles. I think that to understand history properly, you have to give up the progressive narrative altogether. That doesn't mean there isn't progress in particular zones like science or technology and so forth, but there's no value progress orchestrating or guiding world history. And I think we need to understand and appreciate that in order to understand and appreciate also why so many who were woefully deprived of futures and adequate ways of life by neoliberal economic effects turned right instead of turning left. 
I think we need to be able to grasp the other kinds of forces at work besides progress and besides economic interests that organize people's beliefs and values, uh, political attachments, and this part is important, their rancor, their resentment, their, their uh, reproach of certain kinds of forces in the present that they take to be responsible for their misery that aren't those at the top, but are elsewhere. You write, already galled by an elegant black family in the White House, disgruntled whites were also fed a steady diet of right-wing commentary by Fox News, talk radio, and social media, inflected from the uh, fringes as a potpourri of previously isolated movements, white nationalist, liberation, or libertarian, anti-government, and fascist connected with each other via the Internet. Is it all right-wing media's fault. What mistake do we make by simply blaming this only, only and exclusively on Fox News? Great. So let me get to the the heart of the thesis at this book. Uh, sorry, the heart of the thesis in this book. Um, and then uh, at the same time, acknowledge that the sectoralization of the media And by that, I don't just mean the fact of Fox News, but the fact that there is a Fox News constituency that is only a Fox News constituency, just as there is a Rachel Maddow constituency that never looks at Fox News. All of that has made a difference. All of that has poured fuel on the fire. But my argument, roughly compressed, goes like this. Certainly, neoliberalism, the economic policy that we understand neoliberalism to be made life systematically worse for most in the middle and working classes of the global north. And that was a given from the time those policies were first rolled out. The original architects of neoliberalism full well understood that a rising tide does not lift all boats. (laughs) They full well understood that with capital chasing, cheap labor, cheap resources and new markets and new sites of production in the global south, what global free trade was supposed to do, all of that, that that would in fact depress the conditions of existence for those in the global north who were in the laboring classes, middle and working classes. When you, on top of that, strip out the welfare state and all the supports that those classes had in um, the form of a solid, robust welfare state, including access to free, quality, higher education. That depression of current and future prospects is intensified. So that's the economic story. But what else? The other thing that neoliberalism does is launch a full-on assault on robust democracy. The neoliberals understood from the beginning that democracy, if given its way, would inevitably be redistributive and would inevitably engage in social justice programs, economic, cultural, social, you name it, that would benefit the disadvantaged. And the neoliberals, all the different schools of neoliberalism, the one we call the Chicago School, Milton Friedman, the one we call the Austrian School, Hayek, the one Americans don't know so much about called the Ordo Liberal School, currently basically the structure of the European Union, um, 
if if all of those schools agreed on two things, it was this: what must govern societies is not states, and not legislatures, and not the people, but markets on the one hand and traditional morality on the other, because both of those are spontaneously evolved orders of cooperation and organization that don't involve anybody's idea of the good. They just evolve from what works and what is effective and what is sustained over time. So the state should get out of the way. And the other thing they all agreed on was that that meant you had to limit what democracy was. You had to essentially say all legislature should do is make universal rules, support markets, support traditional morality. And on the other hand, all that democratic people should do is vote. Nothing more. Not legislate, not intervene, not engage in social justice projects, not produce egalitarianism at the political or social level, let alone the economic. So their project was much more than a project to just dismantle the social state and let markets fly. It was also a project to dismantle the entire order of the 20th century aimed at producing social justice, social equality, political inclusion, and robust democracy, and instead to replace that with kind of lean, mean, technocratic states that supported markets, but also supported and allowed for the extension of traditional morality. Because traditional morality is the tried and true morality. Social justice is an intervention in it. Social justice is a, is a distortion of traditional morality, just like uh, uh, redistribution is, a, is an intervention in markets. So that was the neoliberal project. How it actually pans out is another story. But part of the reason, I argue, part of the reason that you get a hard right anti-democratic turn in response to neoliberal economic deprivations is that democracy itself has been so radically delegitimated over the past 40 years by neoliberal governing, by the belief that markets and morality ought to govern everywhere, by those principles instantiated in law, in courts, in court appointments, in, uh, in, in legislative talk, that what you have at this point is a people who no longer believe in robust democracy, democracy and think social justice is, as, as the right refers to it, uh, totalitarianism. It's, it's the imposition of ideas of, of the few uh, on the freedom of the many, and freedom means allowing traditional morality and markets to prevail. So that's the story, and that's what I trace out in both the intellectuals uh, I study in this book, but also in actually existing neoliberalism as we talk about it, especially the way it's unfolded in the United States. Uh, you write, with its various inflections, this has become the left's common sense since the political earthquake of November 2016. The narrative is not wrong, but I will argue incomplete. It does not register the forces over determining the radically anti-democratic form of the rebellion and thus tends to align it with fascisms of old. How is what you see as the radically undemocratic form of the rebellion unlike the fascisms of old? Great. 
So the, the line you just read is the one in which I'm separating my argument from those who just say, you know, what, what you've got at this point is, a, is an economically angry white, especially white male population that uh, has turned its resentments against um, immigrants and uh, racial minorities, Jews, Muslims, you name it. And uh, that looks just like the story of the 30s. But here's the thing. The particular form of today's anti-democratic right-wing rebellion is simultaneously libertarian and ethno-nationalist. Now, how do those work together? That is really different from old-style fascism. The way those work together is that freedom, of course, libertarian freedom, is the principle at the heart of neoliberalism. And it's the principle that's not only advanced freedom in the market and attacked labor unions and attacked any form of social organizing and attacked any form of regulation uh, of markets. Freedom is not only the principle that does all that, it's also the principle that advances traditional morality. I have the right to my conservative Christian views as an owner of a major corporation to deprive my employees of a portion of insurance that would cover anything I disagree with, namely a large swath of the technologies and, and pharmaceuticals that, that enable women's reproductive freedom. I have a right as a Christian baker to deny my services to LGBT folks who are seeking to partner in marriage. I have a right as an individual to declare that I will not engage or serve or, or participate in something that violates my Christian views. Now you have the extreme of this today in William Barr, our attorney general, who said a couple weeks ago at uh, Notre Dame, that um, the university, that um, it was in his under that that he took his mission to be that of essentially re-Christianizing the United States because any nation that tried to exist without belief in a single God and the morality, the traditional morality that the Bible offers us was a nation on its way to degradation, deterioration, and essentially the destruction of its own participation in civilization. And he takes his, his mission as attorney general to be that of bringing Christianity back into not just his, his, his own immediate moral sphere, but the public sphere, law, judicial appointments and judicial decisions. Now, how does that work? Well, that's where you need the libertarianism, the right to assert your freedom to, to, to make this part of our world, not just your individual world. It's, it's what the, what the um, philosopher and economist uh, Friedrich Hayek called extending the personal sphere into what was the sphere of social justice or the civic or the public sphere. So that doesn't resemble fascisms of old at all. That's really different. We don't have a fascistic society that looks like the uniform elim uh, society with elimination of individual liberties and all power to the state that we 
see in a Mussolini or a Hitler. We have something different. And I, I call it a plutocratic authoritarian liberalism. Authoritarianism from the state, but an authoritarianism that must respect the liberty that neoliberalism has set in motion in this field, in the, in the spheres of markets and morals. And that's really different from fascism in, the, in, in Italy and Germany in the 30s. I love that description, uh, plutocratic authoritarian liberalism. That is a fascinating description. I want to ask you a few. I have questions. to say, it's a mouthful. Yes, so, you know, I'm not suggesting we take it out on the wires and make it, you know, uh, a meme. But I do think we need to pause over each word and figure out, you know, what what's plutocratic today? What in what sense do the rich really run the economy for their own benefit? What is authoritarian? And what is liberal? Liberal in the classic sense of liberal as in um, liberty, individual liberty being at the heart of things. We need to get that mouthful into a different word that is easier to handle than plutocratic authoritarian liberalism. But we need to have it all in there. Go ahead. No, I, I totally agree. I, I just, I'm just i wondering now if the term neoliberalism on its own kind of erases any possibility that we have of challenging it. When a term like, and when you you know boil it down to plutocratic authoritarian liberalism, if that does create a term or at least a definition that we can challenge, does neoliberalism kind of make the issues of neoliberalism invisible in the way that that term is applied instead of using plutocratic authoritarian liberalism? Sure. But the reason I hang on to the notion of neoliberalism is I think to understand what has brought us to this pass, we need to understand what that Reagan-Thatcher revolution was really about. Everybody in a you know, who knows a little bit of that history imagines, well, what it was about was 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 cutting back the welfare state and uh, and and unleashing the free market. That's what it was about. It was about killing the labor unions, and it was about empowering capital, and it was about creating new investment climates by changing the tax structure, and that's what it was about. But what we need the term neoliberalism for is to understand it was always a bigger vision than that. It wasn't just about, you know, kind of re-engaging a free market after that entire set of post-war decades had given us a Keynesian political economy. It was much more than that. It was about attacking democracy, reducing it to its most anemic version, just voting, as I said. It was about essentially endorsing a more authoritarian version of statism so that the state could support economic and moral order of the sort the neoliberals wanted. And it was about restraining two forces that the neoliberals thought were really dangerous. One was um, a, a mass uneducated uh, potential populism. They didn't say it that way, but they understood that the, the uneducated uh, proletariat, some did refer to it that way, was going to make demands and that had to be leashed. But the other thing they wanted to leash were aggregated or concentrated economic interests. They wanted to keep them away from governing. So they were not they were not looking for plutocratic governing. They they were looking for something else. They were looking for more technocratic governing. Uh, that we got something else has a lot to do with both how history ends up varying from principles and also what they didn't think through. 
namely just how politically powerful those concentrated economic interests would remain even after they produced a free market economy. I know that you've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to make sure that our, this is, you know, I want to make sure our listeners understand this. Does Hayek's, Friedman's, does their neoliberalism inevitably lead to the kind of fascism we see today? No. Um, no, in the sense that it, it was not part of the plan. Well, I, I think, let me, let me answer this two ways. It certainly wasn't their dream. These were guys, whatever we may think of what their dream was, who, who, these were guys who saw fascism, totalitarianism um, as the great dangers in the world and were not uh, trying to produce the kind of order that we see today in which you have um, opportunistic populist demagogues supported by an aroused citizenry uh, making demands that are impossible to fulfill. That was all of what they were trying to quell. So is the, is the order that they unleashed, that someone like Thatcher was actually literally trying to bring into being, she was a devout reader of Hayek, and she thumped Hayek's Constitution of Liberty and said, this is our Bible when she was speaking to her cabinet. So the question is, was it something in the way these guys thought or didn't think through certain parts of the program that inevitably produces where we are today? No, there's something that they didn't think through for sure, which is a whole domain of political life and political power. There's something they didn't think through in terms of how free markets, quote unquote, actually work and never stay free. There's certainly something they didn't think through in terms of traditional morality. But look, part of what's also putting this whole problem today on steroids is a tremendous amount of racialized rancor, resentment, and in the book I call it nihilism. That is to say, we already have a population that's feeling like they're not getting the future that the American dream was promising them. White, male, middle, working class population can never quite get ahead, can never quite get what they think is theirs. And then on top of it, a fiction that everybody else is getting ahead of them in the line who's a different color and a different gender. So you have a kind of uh, whipped up frenzy going on, and the Republican Party has been doing this for 40 years, um, not just with racist dog whistles, but with a kind of overt play to this population, knowing that it's the Republican Party's last gasp. So you have a, you have a, 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 a whipping up of this rancor and resentment and a, and a produced fiction of who really is getting ahead. In fact, African-Americans suffered much more as a population from neoliberal destruction of labor unions uh, and stripping out of the welfare state. But you have this fiction and you have this, at the same time, problem in Western civilization of a depressed value of truth, a depressed value of facticity, and a depressed value of morality as a result that comes from, we could call it 
secularization, we could call it uh, disenchantment. If you want to go with Faber, we could call it a lot of different things, but it comes from a slow and steady toppling of the foundations of morality, foundations that once upon a time took hold in an absolutely unshakable certainty about God. That's no longer the case. Science itself displaced that. So what does that do? That produces a new problem, which is that you still have morality around. You still have belief in traditional morality around. But increasingly, it's weaponized, it's instrumentalized, it's treated as something that what? Secures the supremacy that you've otherwise been stripped of. Because what does traditional morality guarantee? Patriarchy? Native or racialist entitlement, ways of life that are insured or protected over time, that are allowed to be anointed as good just because they are. That means segregationist or homogeneous ways of life. And anything that disturbs them gets rejected. But now what's happened? Traditional morality is increasingly treated as that which resecures those supremacies, resecures those entitlements, but it does it in a way that has lost its foundation in God or belief or Christian goodness or anything else. It is, as you said at the top of the show, weaponized. And that's what you have in Trump. He's a beautiful model of this, not just because he doesn't really believe in any of this stuff, but because he knows exactly how to weaponize this stuff. But you don't just have it in Trump. You have it in Falwell Jr. You have it in many church leaders. You have it in all kinds of folks who do not really care at all about the deep fiber in what we would call traditional morality, but are surely attached to the supremacies that it secures. I want to follow up on something you were saying at the beginning of your response about Margaret Thatcher and others and them not thinking it through, the things like the way that uh, e- the economy actually works. What explains or what does it say to you about them when they didn't think it through, when they did not foresee what neoliberalism would become? Were they purposely ignoring these faults that were coming about or were they just clueless? I think the latter. Um, you know, different, different, uh, thinkers or leaders you can, you can analyze, uh, differently here, but I think that neoliberal economists, and remember that most economists for the last several decades have been essentially subscribing to the neoliberal view about markets, more markets, better markets, spread markets everywhere, everything you can marketize should be marketized because markets are the best system of production, distribution, efficient price point, the rest of it. All of that, I think most of them really, really believed. So if you want to say clueless, what were they clueless about? They were not only clueless about the extent to which markets never really worked in the way that they described them as ideal, But they were also clueless about the political, social, cultural, and I will add theological ramifications of a radically marketized world in which you have not justice, not democracy, but only winners and losers. And the idea that if you just got everybody signed on to a radically marketized world in which you have just winners and losers, the idea that everybody would go with it, that was naive. Why would we? Why would all the losers go with it? 
why would all the losers just say, oh, okay, I see. Markets are not really fair. They don't really, they don't really offer justice. They just distribute and reward um, not even hard work, not even the Horatio Alger story. The neoliberals never liked that story. They just reward contribution. And if you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you might make that contribution and get that reward. But otherwise, you're just going to be a loser. Why wouldn't there be political, social, cultural, theological reaction? What about the rest of things? The mistake that those folks made, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, was just to imagine that, that, that markets could do that work and that you didn't have to think about anything else in human, let alone ecological life. You write the current formation is relatively novel, differing from the authoritarianisms, fascisms, despotisms, or tyrannies of other times and places, and differing as well from conventional or known cons- conservatisms. It thus rejects the language that much of the left uses to upbraid the right, as well as much of the language that the right uses to describe itself. Does neoliberalism then make the language of the left and right absolute? Uh, obsolete? Does, is that why neoliberalism has had such success? I'm not sure I understand. Are you saying that um, does does its kind of does neoliberal do neoliberal principles of valorizing markets and morality and 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 trying to leash every other force that might uh, reach in to organize us? Does that make all the principles of the right and the left political principles, cultural principles, and so forth? Does that make those obsolete? Right. And, 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 you know, that neither the left or right has the language to explain or understand what neoliberalism is. Does that make it obsolete as well? Exactly. I see. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to say we should start speaking more and more and more in public life and political debate and civic life about neoliberalism as such. It's a big mouthful. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It would be like debating liberalism right now. You know, as soon as I say that, I'm I'm already confusing people because Americans think liberalism is liberalism as opposed to conservatism. And the rest of the world thinks that liberalism means the liberty principle as opposed to the justice principle. They think it means something that's much more right wing than most Americans. So It's not that I'm trying to push a different vocabulary into our political life, but to get us to see some of the factors that have brought us to this pass that would quell those tired debates about whether what we need to do is continue with identity politics or abandon identity politics, like the Thomas Edsel view, you know, just get rid of that stuff and go back to something he calls economic issues, by which he means the white working class some identity politics, or get rid of those tired debates about what, whether what really brought us to this pass um, was a kind of slow disintegration of, um, of checks and balances in political life that built a so-called imperial presidency for which we're now paying, or whether the real problem is that the right was really smart about think tanks and about gerrymandering and about voter suppression and about all the other things that would secure its power even while its constituency was waning 
whereas the left has been kind of, you know, blindly marching around in the street with code pink and, and supporting um, the Sandinistas and, you know, Chavez and everything else. That, that Those debates are what I'm trying to say aren't helping us right now because we're not, They none of them feature the extent to which democratic values themselves have been so systematically assaulted. And by democratic values, I just mean the idea that the people ought to legislate together values concerning who we are, what we want to be, and so forth. And instead, we handed that off to markets on the one hand and traditional morality on the other, because that was the neoliberal governance that we were under. We need to understand that that's part of what brought us to this pass. And the simmering racialized rancor of an increasingly dethroned white Euro-Atlantic Euro uh, working population is the other story that we need to bring to the fore. And we need to put those two stories together, the anti-democratic thrust of neoliberalism and the, that simmering rancor that could easily be turned in an anti-immigrant, ethno-nationalist, um, anti-feminist, uh, and of course, anti-black, anti-brown direction. We need to put those together in order to sink our time. You write, conservative forces, however, have made more direct appeals to traditional morality and homilies to the free market, wrapping the pair in patriotism, nativism, and Christianity. And the United States' Supreme Court majority abetted these appeals with a stream of decisions, overturning restrictions on production and commerce, pushing back anti-discrimination statutes, and expanding the meaning and reach of religious liberty. Is the problem then with neoliberalism that it was perverted by patriotism, nativism, and Christianity? You know, I mean, on, on, it's an interesting question. On one level, each of those were certainly part of the neoliberal platform that, you know, you can find uh, uh, salutes to those things in Hayek, in Friedman, in Oiken, in, in Rupka. You can, you can find all of that, but the hyperbolic version in which they also begin to... Um, course through a population as a whole and activate it politically and produce the possibility, again, of a Trump, a Farage, an Orban, a, a Bolsonaro, and so forth, that was not in the neoliberal picture. They, they, they imagined quiet Christianity and patriotism. They, ima they imagined quiet tending of your human capital and your... Um, your moral life in a family, not this activated, angry, ugly, pulsing thing that um, has produced a, both, you know, riven polities, but also uh, tremendous distortions in both the morality and the markets that they dreamed of being, uh, uh, of ruling us. Uh, and, and also supported by essentially neutral states, states that just understood their project as, as supporting markets and morality. So I'm not saying that those things hauled neoliberalism in another direction, but they're, the, the, the extent to which they're activated and, and um, also, mm, let's put it strongly, grotesque, where the, where the patriotism uh, and, and the Christianity are not what we might call mm, 
sober or true or thoughtful or true to the principles of either, but rather they're mostly uh, vengeful, rancorous retorts to imagined anti-patriots, the liberals, not really. They're just retorts to liberals, to, to lefties. Uh, so um, that kind of thing is not what the neoliberals had in mind. But, you know, as I say, they, they certainly were affirming those basic principles at a depoliticized level. We have been speaking with political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. Wendy's most recent book prior to In the Ruins of Neoliberalism was 2015's Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. One last question for you, Wendy, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write the founding texts, rarely mentioned it, but white and male superordination are easily tucked in to the neoliberal markets and morals project. On the one hand, deregulated markets tend to reproduce rather than ameliorate uh, historically produced social powers and sterilization or stratification. Racial and sexual dis- divisions of labor are built into them. Gendered household labor is unpaid, for example, and it's woefully underpaid market version. Uh, child care, house cleaning, home health care, kitchen work is disproportionately shouldered by minorities and immigrants. Is deregulation then a project to defend white supremacy and privilege. Wow, you asked that to all of your interviewees. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's not just that one. There's many other hellish questions I That's ask. That's a great one. Um, indirectly, yes. Indirectly, what deregulating markets does when those markets are already built atop a social structure that is both male-dominant and white dominant is reinforce that structure. And there's no question that part of what neoliberalism did was reinforce that structure. On the other hand, I know we're being brief at this point, but I will say on the other hand, there have been some who've argued, oh, but there are progressive neoliberals who took hold of a certain understanding of marketization and tried to use it to advance feminism, think lean in, or to advance um, upward mobility among disenfranchised groups. And uh, I'm more inclined to say that when you put the traditional morality project into neoliberalism along with the marketization of everything project, there's no doubt that part of what it was doing was resecuring and reinforcing traditional supremacies. Wendy, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book. Everybody should go out and read her new book, In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. Thank you so much for being on our show. I cannot thank you enough. Chuck, it was a great pleasure to talk with you. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. In a few minutes, well, first a live update. I spit a piece of bone out of my mouth just a few seconds ago. That's always nice to know. What the hell is going on with my teeth? Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. In a few minutes, we'll get a live report on the release of former Brazilian President Lula from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Mir. Look, sign up for Patreon, okay? My teeth are falling apart. I need help. I desperately... Maybe I should have a GoFundMe for my teeth. 
Jesus Christ. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Stephen writes, and he's requesting something I I teased on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell a few weeks ago. Stephen writes, please tell me your favorite slur for police. So during research for a monologue, I was looking up slang for police. And while I loved ghetto birds and the Coast Guard because of their signifiers relating to law enforcement's focus on black and Latinx Americans, get it? Ghetto birds because cops are always watching, always chirping. Coast Guard because they now act as immigration officers in many states, border patrol officers in many states. But there was one I enjoyed far more. One other slur, one other slang term I liked even more. However, I can't say it on the show because it utilizes the curse word I cannot repeat and no, it's not fuck. Because see, I just said it. So if you want to know what my favorite cop slang term is, you have to email me with the promise that you will not end your Patreon subscription or stop listening to the show I sent the word to Stephen and he replied you're my favorite thank you you're welcome Stephen enjoy last week we read a message we got from Mickey via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio telling us that a live onstage appearance I did this past summer on a show that was touring the country had made and had made a stop here in Chicago was no longer behind a paywall so I thought it was the entire video of this show where I appeared live on stage Mickey writes so glad to hear my message read on air the Michael Brooks show I listened to was an audio podcast on iTunes podcast of the Michael Brooks show. So I made the mistake last week of saying it was video of the performance, so Alex will be sharing the audio online with all y'all real soon because it's on iTunes. We actually had a winner of the Question from Hell claim their prize. That's news. That makes only the second person to do so in the last 10 weeks. If you win the Question from Hell, please email us your mailing address or send it to us, message us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and we will send you your prize. David writes, hello, Leo, Alex, and the other guy, Chuck. I won the Halloween contest with Justin... Our question from hell was, what Halloween costume are you getting away with this year? What Halloween costume are you getting away with this year? And he said, uh, Justin Trudeau in whiteface. I believe the prize is a thumb drive. It is, David, it is. And it's the thumb drive that everybody can get. The uh, This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, which features 25 classic interviews from the last 20 years here on the show, all recorded in the 2000s. You can find that at thisishell.com when you click on support. So yes, we will be sending that to you, David. Thank you for sending us your address in Parksville, British Columbia, Canada. Thanks, David. And it had to be the person who gave us the hellish response, Justin Trudeau and Whiteface, forcing me to repeat Justin Trudeau and Whiteface, which was like the most uncomfortable answer from hell we've had in a very long time. We also got a message from Lisa who wants to know if office hours are happening this week. Yes, they are, Lisa. And we hope to see you and all our listeners at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is hell office hours is a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. We had a huge crowd last week, which was surprising because it was the first really cold evening of the fall, and it's going to be even colder tomorrow, so maybe we'll have even more people show up. Thanks to Leo, Alex, Anna, David, John, Ronaldo, Shankar, Wally, Nate, Joel, uh, 
Jen, Lee, Pete, Fareed, Jordan, Elliot, Shelley, and I know I'm forgetting a few other people because the combination of painkillers I was on and beer were really doing a number on me. My back was killing me, and I must have popped like six a leave last week during office hours, so apologies for my slurred speech and forgetfulness last week. Coming up, we'll find out what the release of former Brazilian President Lula means for Brazil and its future. Then tomorrow, we're talking about all the uprisings the U.S. media refuses to cover in Ecuador, Chile, and yes, Bolivia. And we'll have Jeff Dorchin doing a moment of truth. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. You may not have heard it if you listen, watch, or read the mainstream news here in the U.S., but imprisoned former Brazilian President Lula was released from jail following a Brazilian Supreme Court decision that found his detention illegal. Here to help us figure out what's happening in Brazil and why, editor and correspondent Brian Muir edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is an editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. He was on most recently in August when we spoke with him about his Brazil Wire article headlined The Day the Sky Went Out on the fires in the Brazilian Amazon and uh, his story at fair.org titled Media Blackout on Brazil's Anti-Bolsonaro Protests, which we're going to touch on during this interview today. Uh, so let's, Brian, let's kind of walk through this whole process of former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, being arrested, found guilty, imprisoned, and released. So what were the charges that led to Lula's arrest at the very beginning? Let's just walk our listeners through it. Okay, well, first of all, you know, at Brazil, well, we've published nearly 100 articles on this. So more than any other publication in the English language. So I will try to be as brief and objective as possible with my answer here. Lula, um, you know, they've been trying to get rid of Lula since he first became president. And so after years of um, trying to find him, find any relation between him and with him and any kind of corruption, finally, this uh, U.S. backed U.S. Department of Justice, Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office joint operation called Car Wash began officially around 2012, 2013. So they finally built this case against Lula and he was convicted uh, with no jury in a process with no jury by the judge who bizarrely also oversaw the investigation into him for committing indeterminate acts of corruption. And this is something that was widely misreported in the Anglo media at that time. It was related to this apartment, this beachfront apartment in the city of Guarulhos, uh, no, Guarujá, which is near Sao Paulo, you know. Uh, the prosecuting team was unable to prove, the, they weren't able to come up with any uh, material evidence. There was no documentation that ever showed that Lula had owned this apartment. The allegation was initially that he had received an apartment as a gift from a construction company, uh, but the date that this supposedly happened was after he had left office, so it, it was unclear as to how this represented any kind of quid pro quo. But they were unable to, you know, the dot, the the title to the apartment at the time was still in the name of the construction company, 
they didn't have any evidence of Lula's family ever spending any time there. You know, it seemed like at one point Lula's wife thought about buying an apartment in that building and then, you know, changed her mind. Because if you see the photos of it, as Glenn Green, Greenwald points out, it's a pretty shitty apartment for an ex-president to be living in. Even though it's like three floors, it's cr they're crappy and small floors, you know. And there was crappy furniture in there when they finally broke in and photographed it because the, the judge wasn't allowing the media in. So, so the entire case was based on one plea bargain testimony by a corrupt business executive who changed his story three times until they gave him like 95% prison sentence reduction and partial retention of his illicit bribery assets. You know, that he had to change his story three times before I got out of jail. And that was, that was basically what the case was built on one plea bargain testimony. Now, in, even so, even though he was convicted, it would have still been illegal to throw him in, president, in, in prison. So they went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled on whether they could or not make an exception to the, two, to the 1988 Constitution and allow the justice system to start imprisoning people before their appeals processes had played out kind of abandoning the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, you know, and it was very obvious that this was specific. They tried to pretend it was just a general thing, but it was very specific to Lula's case because it was an election year. He was leading all the polls by double the support of his nearest rival by all of the other candidates support levels combined. He was ahead of all that. So the night before the Supreme court ruling general Vilas Boas threatened the Supreme Court ministers and the most popular news channel, news program in the country, anchorman William Boner, funny last name, read the, um, read the threat by the general over the air on primetime news in this kind of low voice that dimmed the lights. And the next day, uh, Supreme Court Justice Rosa Weber was visibly shaken and nervous, and she said, well, I'm going to vote against my prior beliefs and convictions and side with the majority here. And so she threw the vote. This enabled them to elect Lula. You know, once he was in jail, uh, about a year later, as we all know now, Glenn Greenwald, who's now widely beloved in Brazil by most and widely hated by some, uh, and The Intercept released, started releasing leaked social media chats between Judge Sergio Moore and the prosecution team, and in some cases even Supreme Court justices, which showed massive illegal collusion, deliberately trying to remove Lula from the presidential elections. They show there have been so many leaked conversations have been released, and it's so damning. It's outrageous. They show three hours before the the final trial of Lula, the prosecutors talking among themselves about how they didn't have a case, they didn't have any evidence of Lula committing any corruption, but it was okay because Moro was going to convict him anyway. You know, they have a Supreme Court justice laughing about the tragic death of Lula's seven-year-old grandson. You know, they have um, Chief Prosecutor Dalton Dalignol talking about how he was praying to God that Bolsonaro would win the election. And basically the leaks show that not only did the judge instruct the prosecutors on how 
to engage in the investigation and the, the prosecution and build the case. He also instructed them on how to slander Lula in the media and how to, how to uh, uh, exercise these leaks. And, you know, even before the intercept leaks came out, we knew that the entire operation was illegal. He'd been, Moore had been given the right by corrupt local court to act above the law during the investigation. So for like one illegal thing he did was they wiretapped Lula's entire defense team and used hundreds of hours of illegally wiretapped conversations about Lula's case to make these kind of charts and map out possible moves by the defense so that they could preemptively react against them. Now, in any other country in the world, that would cause everyone involved to be debarred and possibly jailed. There's a one similar case of this happening in Spain like 15 years ago, and the judge was jailed over it. All right, so, so basically this is what happened. And, then, and so, you know, last week, it's been moving through the Supreme Court. They, the, the, you know, the decision they made to, to make an exception to the Constitution and allow people to be jailed before their appeals process is played out was kind of like temporary and they had to make a final ruling on it. And so this uh, stalled out over the course of the last year. And I wasn't, I didn't think, I didn't have that much hope for it actually happening, but lo and behold, Rosa Weber, the same Supreme Court justice who was threatened, who felt threatened, who was shaking last year when she ruled against, uh, against, um, the the constitution and stuff she she had a 180 degree turnaround angela davis was in brazil recently and so she just decided she had to hold on to her reputation as a judge and she cited angela davis in her ruling and she even read the poem waiting for the barbarians in its entirety and and threw the vote back you know in favor of the 1988 constitution so what this did was it rendered Lula and a couple thousand other prisoners, you know, rendered their imprisonment instantly illegal. So what happened basically is it shows that, like, according to the Constitution, Lula has been illegally imprisoned for the last 580 days. And, like, I was worried they were going to try and invent some way to keep him in there. But they, like, they just immediately released him. Like, Teleser was going to send me there on this Monday. We thought that the local judge would at least stall for a few days. But they, like... They had to immediately release Lula. And so, you know, now he's out. This the part, and it, it, uh, Brian, yeah. uh, Reuters reported the Supreme Court ruled that a person, in this case Lula, can only be imprisoned once all appropriate avenues of appeals are exhausted, which overturned the court's opinion three years ago that convicted criminals face mandatory imprisonment if they lose their first appeal. Following last week's Supreme Court ruling, lawmakers have advocated speeding up a constitutional amendment, reinstating automatic jail time for convicts who lose their first appeal. Both the lower house and Senate are currently analyzing constitutional amendments on the subject because they take longer to go through the legislative process than ordinary bills, nothing is likely to happen until next year. Is the Brazilian far-right government then, right now, working hard to change the law, if not the Constitution, to throw Lula back in jail? Well, well, Chuck, the fact of the matter is, first of all, Reuters, you know, uh, Brazilian law is not for novices, and Reuters makes several mistakes in that characterization of what's going on, okay? But to answer your question, uh, there's some people, yeah, there was, there was supposed to be massive protests to 
change the Constitution. Now, imagine a constitutional amendment just to throw one guy in jail. Imagine if they did that in the U.S. <laughs> you know, changing their people suggesting to change the Constitution. You know, they're pretending there's some kind of principle behind it, but it's to put Lula back in jail. But fortunately for the you know the rule the possible reestablishment of the rule of law in brazil which has been seriously damaged since the 2016 coup the right is infighting now and so congressional president rodrigo maia just announced that if they try to do that in congress he's just going to throw it out so there's not a chance there's not much of a chance of this constitutional amendment going through and also the protests that were held the day that lula's welcome home party took place in San Bernardo, the metal workers union, which I went to, which was amazing. You know, there was a pretty big throw him in jail, shut down the Supreme Court protest in Sao Paulo. But in the rest of the country, it just completely fizzled out. Even in Bolsonaro's hometown of Rio de Janeiro, there wasn't even a city block long protest. And in some cities, there were less than 100 people at this protest. So it seems like, and at the same time, the percentage of Brazilians who think that Lula was unjustly in prison has gone up. Sergio Moro's popularity has dropped. Bolsonaro's approval rating is now, despite what they're saying in the media about Lula's release causing all of this polarization in Brazil, Bolsonaro's popularity rating now is at 27%. It's dropped another three percentage points since Lula was released. So it doesn't, it doesn't look like it looks like the the right is continually just fragmenting and fragmenting because mainly it's a group of opportunists. I mean, there's some hard right traditional politicians in there, but a lot of the people are just opportunists who used hate speech to get elected. They don't know how to operate in government, and they're all fighting with each other. So, you know, was... even, uh, both, yeah. No, go ahead. No, Bolsonaro is like fighting with some of his biggest former allies right now and he just announced today that he's leaving his political party <laughs> so that can't, this can't last very much longer so i was looking for an opinion piece that would annoy you on this subject and so oh. i immediately went to the new york times and i found oh. carol perez who is identified as a political reporter and a contributing opinion writer for the new york times and espanol perez writes given the unpopularity of the current president jair bolsonaro the liberation of the most beloved and most hated man in Brazil threatens to further deepen political tension. Is Lula both the most loved and most hated man in Brazil? Oh, did you just, I'm sorry, you, you broke up a little bit. Oh, uh, is Lula the most loved and most hated man in Brazil? Uh, you know, it's, that's lazy. That's very lazy writing on her part. Um, there's been this massive media character assassination campaign, you know, against Lula for years. And the New York Times was part of it. Okay. The New York Times helped destroy Lula's reputation over um, allegations that we now know were lies, that he was corrupt. New York Times, the New Yorker, you know, Washington Post, they all partook of this. Um, is he the most hated most loved and most hated man in Brazil. He's very beloved. You know, he would have like, he would have won the last presidential election. 
So how much how much do people hate him? He was you know he was slated to win the last presidential election in the first round from behind bars three months after he'd been imprisoned and illegally blocked by the Supreme Court through collusion, which you know the Intercept has now revealed with Sergio Moro, blocked from speaking to the press. He was still going to win in the first round. So the idea that he's the most hated person in Brazil is pretty exaggerated. They're trying to act like um, he's this polarizing figure. They're trying to act. They're trying to create this ridiculous, you know, false equivalency between um, Bolsonaro and Lula, as if you know, um, as Marcelo Zero, the Brazilian analyst, you know, wrote today, this false equivalency that they're both kind of like populist extremists, they're both extremists, would be like comparing, making an equivalency between Nelson Mandela and the guy who invented apartheid. You know, Lula was a key figure in bringing down the military dictatorship and the return to democracy in Brazil. And he's participated in every single liberation struggle that's taken place in Brazil since the 1970s. Women's rights, LGBT rights, Afro-Brazilian rights, you know, labor rights, all of this stuff. And he, he was a very conciliatory figure, not a radical leftist at all. You know, a lot of people criticize him for not being left enough. And uh, essentially just a, like a European-style social democrat, really, you know. And so the idea that he's some kind of radical populist, this is what they're trying to, the flames they're trying to fan right now in the northern media because, you know, capitalist businesses that, bankroll that places like the New York Times, they're terrified that someone's going to take power back in Brazil and start undoing all of the illegal privatizations that have benefited U.S. companies, U.S. oil companies and things like that. Uh, Pires, you know, also, so that yes. Pires also writes that the Workers' <laughs> Party has floundered since Mr. De Silva was imprisoned in April 2018, and yet no other politician has managed to come to the fore while in prison as he has. With his charismatic rhetoric and his track record as one of the most popular presidents in Brazilian history, he remains the only opposition figure capable of mobilizing the masses. Is Lula the Workers' Party? If Lula cannot lead, is there any alternative to the far right? Is it Lula or nothing? Yeah, Chuck, this is another just blatant lie that I've seen circulating in the media. Like, from the way they write about it, you would think, you would think that the PT wasn't the largest political party in Brazilian Congress right now. They maintained their status as the largest political party in Congress after Lula was arrested. So that's a blatant lie. On top of that, you know, um, they still made it to the second round, even though Lula was illegally prevented from even speaking to the press during the presidential campaign. His last minute replacement for president, Fernando Haddad, still made it to the final round of the elections. He still got 47 million votes, you know, Fernando Haddad. And the idea that Lula is the only person that mobilizes the Brazilian left is bullshit because in May of this year, on two different dates, the students' unions, high school and university students' unions and teacher unions, put 1.8 million people on the streets of hundreds of Brazilian cities on two consecutive dates, you know, against Bolsonaro's um, uh, education, proposed neoliberal education reforms. So... It's misleading. It's just BS. It's New York Times. You know, they're like regime change stenographers and cheerleaders in Latin America. I'm sure they're just like 
over there jerking themselves off with joy about the coup in Bolivia too, which they helped set the groundwork for. So it's just, you know, it's the New York Times. They're, they're, an, they're a key actor in the United States integral state, and they stand for everything rotten that the U.S. ever does in Latin America. You know, the, the biggest oil spill, Chuck, the biggest oil spill in the history of Brazil has just destroyed 2,200 kilometers of coastline in Brazil. And there's some indication that it might be some of these privatized oil fields in some kind of like foreign company drilling accident that caused it. And New York Times isn't talking about that at all. The, when they mentioned it, they try to act like it was one ship that, that spilled oil on 1,200 miles of coastline. Yeah, and this is the story that you were covering. I saw you're writing a Brazil Wire about this and how they didn't know what the source of this uh, oil spill is. The New York Times and the mainstream media here, ABC, CBS, NBC, they were all reporting on the fires in the Brazilian Amazon. So at least they were covering that. To you, what explains why they're not going to be, re- why they haven't said word one about this oil spill? That if it would have happened anywhere else, it would be huge news. Chuck, I don't know, but remember Deepwater Horizon and BP? I mean, the, the fact that they can't, they can't figure out where it's coming from, to me, just shows that there has to be some kind of cover-up going on. I mean, there's satellite photos that show it didn't come from one ship. People know that. And you know what? It's not stopping, and the fires aren't stopping. I have a friend who flew back from the Amazon region last week and told me fires are burning everywhere. And now they say... Maybe one million people in Minas Gerais have toxic heavy metal poisoning from that toxic dam burst. So Brazil's like simultaneously facing its three largest, three of its largest environmental crises in modern history right now. And it, you know, you would think that anyone who pretends to at least marginally be an environmentalist or support environmentalism, like the Guardian, would then support the fact that Lula is out of jail and that. The, the the left seems to be strengthening and mobilizing right now. Because after all, when he was president, they cut deforestation by 70%. You know, they had a functioning environmental regulatory system, which has been abandoned now. But they're, instead, they're trying to make this kind of like false equivalency between, oh, look at these irrational Brazilians. Look at the poor people, the way they love Lula. And look at look at how they're just divided by these emotionally mobilizing engaging characters this drama because they're incapable of making you know intelligent political decisions they're latinos now this is what i feel like the underlying current in the in the in the northern media is or how they're trying to react to uh to lula getting out of jail which is something which disturbs them obviously so one last question for you brian uh what happens if the Brazilian government does throw Lula back in jail. What do you think the reaction by the people would be? Chuck, I honestly, I was, I I was talking to some of the best veteran journalists in Brazil over the weekend. And it looks like the chances of him being thrown back in jail are really low right now. Almost non-existent, not going to happen. There is, however, it does look like, and I hate to say this, there's a chance that he could be assassinated. You know, like that might be the next step because putting him back in jail right now is not going to work. You know, the Supreme Court in their ruling, they spoke about Glenn Greenwald's intercept leaks, 
So now that's like a matter of public court record. The push now is actually to put Sergio Moro in jail, to get him out of the justice ministry. So I don't, I don't see Lula being arrested again, despite, you know, what they're saying in the northern media as usual. Oh, yeah, his, his legal problems aren't over. It looks like that the chances of that happening are very low. What I'm worried about is him being assassinated. Thank you very much for walking us through what has happened to Lula. I always appreciate talking to you. And we need to get you back on to talk about other stuff that's happening in Brazil that's not Lula-related. Thank you so much for being back on this show. I love you, brother. Love you too, Chuck. Take it easy, man. <laughs> All right, Good stay, talking to you. Stay beautiful, my friend. All right. So, live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. Alex, do you have any more responses to this week's question from Hell, which is, where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? Oh, yeah, sorry. Pulling it up. Uh, Wendy Brown was still on hold when uh, you mentioned that part of your me- teeth came out in your mouth. Oh, you nice. did, interview. did she say anything? Uh, no, no, no. It was, I, I just had uh, <laughs> muted her thing, but I, uh, I wanted to see where that was going, so I let her on hold. So that is the last impression she has of the show. I don't know what's going on. It just popped out. It's just that this that thing. Remember, I had a, a piece of my jaw. It's just like it grew. A bone grew in my mouth. And I had a doctor, my dentist, uh, he ground it down and so it went away. And all of a sudden, another one popped out. And it popped out during the show today. And it came out of my mouth. You Good got, Lord. You got, you got bone spurs in your mouth. I do. It's Oh, my God. Uh, this week's question from hell is. This is hell, I'm telling you. Where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? Benjamin C. says, Joe Biden's Medicare for all plan. <laughs> Dan T. says, I hid them all in Bolivia, and now the CIA has confiscated. I mean, I've said too much already. J. Benjamin L.B. says, in a New York State trooper evidence locker. <laughs> Chris F. says, rolled up in Epstein's suicide note. The cops will never find them. <laughs> Where are you hiding all your drugs? Harold J. says, I hide them in a new spot every time, and I can't remember a single one of them. <laughs> Joe S. says, in my medicine cabinet, isn't that where drugs should go? Sure. John T. says, deep within Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, Doral, and all Trump Towers. <laughs> Matt B. says, sounds like Chuck got busted and is taking the plea deal. <laughs> and finally, Kai LBJ says, nice try, FBI. <laughs> Leave your response to this week's question from hell at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. If we decide you have the best answer to this week's question from hell, you will get a flash drive loaded with 25 classic This Is Hell interviews from this century in a flash drive that we call This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. And you can find that at our new store, which you can go... You can peruse at thisishell.com when you click on support. We hope to see you uh, at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet tomorrow night. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Here in Chicago's little India neighborhood, more than a meet and greet, This is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us any each end every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. So, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's uh, live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning? Uh, Lucas Kerner will be on to talk live from Caracas. Lucas Kerner will be on to talk about his fair piece, Media Conceal Chile State Criminality, Delegitimize Bolivarian Democracy, and Whitewash, another piece, uh, Whitewashing Neoliberal Repression in Chile and Ecuador. Yeah, and we wanted to have him on last week, but unfortunately he was having issues with his visa and he was having trouble leaving the Dominican Republic, so we're very glad to have Lucas back on. Also, uh, we do have Jeffrey Sterling confirmed. Oh, for uh, next week, Friday, 22nd. November 22nd. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show 
live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. And now again, I want to thank Jonah Tomko-Smith for helping us out yesterday, as well as thanks to Theron Humiston. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for contributing to our rotten history. And thanks to every one of our guests, Liza Featherstone, author of the New Republic article, Moving Beyond Misogyny, and the Jacobin piece, When the Ruling Class Feared Communism. Also thanks to political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, editor and correspondent, our correspondent in Brazil, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir. Uh, Thanks for his report on the release of Lula from prison. And you can see a picture of Brian with President Lula, former President Lula, uh, on his Facebook page. So go check that out. This week's Hangover Cure is pretending you don't have a hangover cure, simply ignoring, or hangover, simply ignoring it. Pretending you don't have a hangover, and that's got to be the dumbest, stupidest hangover cure I've ever heard. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on today's show is by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. My demon. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.